And before we dive into today's passage, which is a bit chunky, um, but we'll read it out uh, in a few moments, but uh, let's recap first from the last couple of weeks. We find that the people of Israel are enslaved by the Egyptians, and they've cried out to God for rescue from this brutality that they're suffering. And it's been 400 years and more at this stage. And God hears their cry, and he calls Moses in the midst of all this. And Moses is the man chosen to lead them out of slavery. Last week, we saw how God sent the first nine plagues in as many opportunities for Pharaoh to let the Israelites go to free them from the slavery that they had been in for so long. But, as some of you life groups would have probably uh, grappled around, there's a question. Why plagues? And why so many of them? Why plagues? And why so many of them? God could have rescued them in an instant, couldn't he? But he didn't. Instead, for what uh, we have kind of worked out to be six or seven weeks of a period of time, he orchestrated events that were bizarre, if not debilitating, for the Egyptians. Last week, we went through all those nine plagues, uh, and, and we learned that they're not only for the Egyptians. The Israelites, they might have been unaffected by them in a physical way, but God designed them to impact them on a different level. So why use plagues as a rescue plan? Well, God answers this question back in Exodus 6, uh, verses 6 and 7, and he says uh, to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I kind of overpronounced that. Acts, plural, of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And here it is. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It's a reminder. But let's read. Let's just dive right into today's scripture. Let's uh, read along Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll go through a good part of the next chapter as well. I'll read along. It'll be up on the screen. You can pull it up on your devices or your Bibles. Let's read. The Lord says to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was, in, was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses. Pharaoh gave him the same message. Nope, I'm not going to let you go. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, the part of the top of the top of the door uh, doorpost doorframe of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, that they shall eat it. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it, raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, whole thing. And you shall not let you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened on the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No Work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the, the blood that is, that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the tor- two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you, sh- when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, to all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today around a passage of Scripture that that says so much and can be quite overwhelming and also quite heavy. Um, Father, won't you give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you're saying this morning, what you're saying to us today, uh, 26 September 2021? What, what you, where you have us now? Father, won't your, your, your spirit move and your voice be audible in our hearts and minds this morning as we delve into this passage? Um, Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> thank you for your... Your absolute, uh, your scripture, just which is truth, and we ask that you give us uh, a, even more of an insight into your truth this morning. Amen. All right. Well, today we read about the tenth plague and how it triggers this great, actually the greatest act of redemption and deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament. And we're not going to only delve, delve into the what, but also into the deeper why. You know, just like we asked why it had to be plagues, today we're going to ask why did it have to culminate with the bloody death of a helpless victim? Why did it have to culminate with the bloody death of a helpless victim? Well, in order to understand this or better understand it, let's look first at the Passover itself. Now, we're not going to go through every, you'll be happy to know, we're not going to go through every verse today. I usually like to do that in like an inductive way, but it's just not going to, yeah, we're, we should have asked you to bring some lunch if we were going to do some mess. So we're not going to do that today. We're going to, I've, I've uh, but, but I'll, I'll reference some chunks of scripture at times and pull a few out to help us see uh, uh, some things I, I trust that God is is going to do this morning. So, uh, so, so let's look first at this Passover. It's the name that we see was given to this great act of redemption. You know, it was called the Passover. We see it right there in this in the in the passage. 
And as is very meticulously and specifically uh, gets into, particularly in, in chapter 12, a lot of the, a lot of the steps and a lot of the th- traditions that need to be followed, to this day, it is still practiced by Jews every year to remember, to never forget what God did for them three and a half thousand years ago in Egypt. Now, to keep alive a memory of major national or global events is no small thing, right? You know, we can think of contemporary examples. Even the big ones, they tend to dim over the generations. Um, this weekend, Heritage Day uh, is, is a, day, a South African public holiday. But did you know that its roots are nearly 200 years old? I mean, Heritage Day was established in 1905 or 96, right? But did you know that it, it, it hearkens to another Remembrance Day? 24 September was, was, was the day that King Shaka is known to have died. It's to commemorate his death, the Zulu king. He played an important role in uniting the Zulu clans back then. And has lost a little bit on many still celebrated Shaka Day. Some don't want to call it Heritage Day. They don't want to forget. They don't want to forget. But another example, coincidentally, completely separate, but it's coincidentally around the same time that the first Heritage Day was being celebrated, I was a high school student, and I was given an assignment, along with the rest of my classmates, to interview someone who had fought in World War II. At that time, it had ended about five decades prior. And I remember getting to interview a man, a man that my family knew well, and he was a man in our church. And uh, it was amazing to hear a firsthand account of his experience in this major, just amazing, incredibly sad and, 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 and global scale event. I'm grateful to have the conversation with this man. And he's died since then. But it hits me when I realize that it's extremely unlikely that my kids will ever get to meet, if let alone interview, someone who was alive during World War II. I looked it up. Don't worry. There's about 16 million people who were involved in some way in World War II, and about less than 2% of them are still living today. And at that, they're quite a... Quite a uh, quite an old age to the point where we may not, you know, this is, there will be a common day when the last person who was involved in World War II passes away. It's a reality, right? It's an event that happened now 75, 76 years ago. And we are essentially at the point where we have to rely on stories, whether printed or word of mouth, that are being told by secondhand sources, passed down. And so it is still, to, to this day, for Jewish people, with the memory of the event of today's passage, passed down for generations. Incredible. Because it's the central act of their faith. It's the central act of the Jewish faith. So with that in mind, let's consider how things are sitting just before today's scripture picks up. Consider, what if you're Pharaoh? What if you're the Egyptians? Well, it's effectively summed up in what Pharaoh says to Moses back in chapter 5 when Moses and Aaron first goes, goes to them to let his, uh, his people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go, says Pharaoh? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, 
I will not let Israel go. In other words, he and the Egyptians are asking, what is so unique about your God? You see, it's helpful to understand that Pharaoh was considered a god on earth. We mentioned that last week. But we'll say it again here because it's so important to remember. His role was to be the intermediary between the gods and the people. In fact, he was considered a god himself. There, There were hundreds of other gods and goddesses, often with human bodies and animal heads. And and it was just a culture of many gods, the Egyptians. And what's more, Egypt at this time was one of the most powerful political and military influences in the world. So not many, if any nation, and certainly not an enslaved one, could stand up to their might. So the presence of the Israelite slaves uh, was very much the norm. No one alive knew life any different. It had been 400 plus years at this point since God first called Abraham to live in Egypt. And now, After nine plagues, we see the Egyptians, they were being weakened before their very eyes. They had their health taken from them, their livestock, their food supplies. And even more amazingly, God was able to cause a plague to inflict the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. He could tell who was who and wield his power accordingly. Now, just before the tenth plague, what if you're the Israelites? What if you're one of the Israelites? After so many years, I would imagine that that their patience with God is running on the thin side. I mean, perhaps some complacency has set in over the generations. Well, this is the way it's always going to be. Or that promise. Wait a minute, that promise. That promise that God made to Abram, to Abraham, had not yet come to pass. I mean, Genesis 15, there it is. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But you could say at this stage, the statement that Pharaoh said earlier, I do not know the Lord, you could argue that they could almost be said by the Hebrews too. These Hebrews, present day, as in just before 10th plague, present day, their present generation wasn't around in Joseph's day, let alone Abram's. They don't have a place where they can worship God. They don't know how much power God really has or how he compares to the other gods of the Egyptians. But these last nine plagues are beginning to remind them what their ancestors have been, have been passing down. They've, they've suffered, though, in the midst of all this, incredible brutality. I mean, talk about, like, just, just a dampened spirit. I mean, from, from uh, uh, just all the baby boys killed when, when Moses was born. Remember that? And, and making them work harder when Moses first asked Pharaoh to let them go. So in a way, it's understandable. It's understandable why the remembrance of God's promise to deliver them had become dim. And God is revealing himself to both the Egyptians, but even more importantly, to the Israelites, that they will know that he is Yahweh. It's like uh, I've studied violin back in my uh, you, younger days for the better part of a decade. Uh, privately, a study. My mom started me. She's, she was the, the teacher at the time. 
So from uh, age eight to about 20, I, I, I played violin and uh, played in the university orchestra, and I lost a love for it. I decided to walk away from it after year one in university, and uh, I, I'll never sell my violin, uh, although I've thought about it. Um, I have this unspoken pact with my mom that if I'm ever in the country and it's Christmas or Easter, that, okay, we'll play. We'll play at church, because that was our thing. Um, but uh, I've kind of walked away, forgotten the joy of what it's like to play. And now my boy, completely unsolicited, choose, chooses to, to, to play the violin this, this year in grade two. And I find myself practicing with him. And uh, it's bringing back this remembrance, you know, this joy, this, this, this thing that was very, very special to me in my life. And uh, start, something's starting to come alive. And perhaps that's a similar kind of thing, very, very far-removed example. But maybe something of that is helping us better understand some of this, what's happening in the Israelites' hearts now. You know, they've seen these nine miraculous events not affect them physically, but they're seeing, like, what's going on here? Is God actually coming through? They're beginning to think, this is our God who relentlessly loves us and keeps his promises. And it can't be long now, right? And here we pick up on today's passage, the tenth and final plague, stroke, or strike, as we should say, say, because we see it in chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 12, and it says, God, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Later on, in uh, verse 23, Moses, when speaking to the Israelites, says it this way, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Now, God is saying on one night, in one place, there is about to be an eternal, temporary, but devastating, divine judgment day. I'll say it again. There will be, there's about to be an eternal, temporary, but devastating, divine judgment day. Moses calls this uh, the, the destroyer. God personified himself as that as well. When he's talking to, to, to Moses, he says, you know, someone says, oh, who's a destroyer? Well, it's God, because God said, I will, I will strike. Um, but I think, I think Moses uh, eloquently put it in a way to help the Israelites wake up. <laughs> destroyer, this is actually what uh, he's about to do. He will cut through the world's most powerful military force like butter. But you can avoid this judgment with a lamb. Huh? The meekest, mildest animal, um, fluffy and muffy. <laughs> but by killing this lamb, eating it, putting it on, putting some of the blood on your doorposts, you will be spared. No, specifically, your firstborn will be spared. What is it this about the firstborn? Well, let's consider the cultural and the historical context. The very first story of the lamb in the Bible is Abram and Isaac. Back in Genesis, when God instructs Abram to take his son Isaac uh, to offer him as a sacrifice to God. But we say, oh my goodness, Abram must have felt it was a monstrous thing to do. Oh, how dare you, God, <laughs> right? But it actually wasn't. Why? Well, there's a two-part answer. 
First, culturally, ancient people didn't have aspirations for individual prosperity and success. It wasn't part of their uh, day-to-day. It was, it was more about the success and prosperity of their family. People didn't think in individualistic terms like we are so well-influenced to think today. And so if some of the family failed, the entire family was responsible. And this is still true of many cultures today cultures that we get to do life with right here, in fact, in South Africa. But most of us, in this room at least, this wasn't the norm. This is not our experience in life. And most of us have been uh, influenced by, may I say, a radical individualistic trend. And so we tend to think and live that way. And frankly, when we we believe that that's the only way we then deduce it's the right way. So we kind of bit, our, our minds are a bit shut to this idea. But we are actually, if I may say, a bit of a side, is we are inescapably more a product of our family, for good and bad, than we think we are. But that's an aside. The other reason, the answer uh, to, to, to um, the other answer, I suppose, to the question, uh, why wasn't a monstrous thing for the idea for uh, Abram to offer his firstborn, his you know, Isaac to, to God, is that we see in part of uh, the law that Moses uh, established, Mosaic law, it was declared that the life of every firstborn was God's, unless you redeem it. So in the firstborn, all the family's hopes rested, and God was sending a message, there was a redemption price, a debt, a debt of sin, in fact, that is owed God from every family, every Year. Otherwise, the lives of their firstborn were, were forfeited. They had to be redeemed. And that's not as familiar to us as it was very much understood by ancient people. And it's important to understand so that we can more fully grasp the significance of what's going on today on this passage. So for God to tell Abram to offer his firstborn son, his Isaac, Abraham, real, Abram, Abraham realized that God was calling in a debt. Sure, Abraham struggled, and he, <laughs> humanly, right? Of course he struggled. But he obeyed because he knew that it was something that God had a right to do. And in that story, we see Isaac the boy saying to his dad, Father, we've, we've got the wood, right? We've got the fire, but where's the lamb? And we see Abraham basically answer, God will provide. (laughs) And then in his heart, I hope with all of my being, with all of myself, that God will provide a lamb. So my little lamb won't have to die. Now, even as I read this, even as I hear my very words, and maybe you too, I'm thinking, ah, man, this can't be. I mean, this doesn't. This doesn't uh, uh, align with the idea of a God of love, right? So some would object to this. Well, first, I would say, well, does every single family really have a debt owed to God? Surely we have, 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 um, we can determine how we live and, and we can live by our own standards. But no, think about it. It wouldn't take long, even if you established your own standards or you just thought about how others ought to live and took those as standards and said, okay, I'm going to apply those to my life. We wouldn't last long, right? We would break our own morals, our own standards. We're just broken. But this other thing about the debt, 
God can simply forgive it, right? No. That is, he can't just forgive without some sort of payment being paid by someone. Think about it. If someone really wrongs you, if someone really wrongs me, what happens? There's a debt. There's something between you, there's something, let's put my, my, there's something between me and the other party. It can't be wished away. It's there. And there are two ways that the debt can be paid. Either I can make them pay it, hurting them, berating them, excluding them, damaging their reputation, something. Or I can forgive it. That is, when I want to hurt them, I don't. When I want to think hateful thoughts and what hateful person they are, I don't. And as time goes on, my anger slowly subsides. Why? Because I'm paying down the debt myself. Does that make sense? Consider this in the context of someone, let's take it to the extreme, in the context of someone who's committed a heinous crime. The judge says, stands up and says, well, he says he's sorry for it, so he can go free. Why would there be an outrage? Why would the people in the courtroom not want that to happen, right? To let him go free means others will pay instead. How? The victim's lives are devalued. The things they lost are worthless if you let that man go free. Society will pay because this kind of thing will carry on, either by the very hands of this man who's letting, being let go or by others who see it and watch it and say, oh, you got away with it, so now I can. So there's no such thing as a serious wrong that can be forgiven without payment. Someone pays in some way. So Abram knows this and was God's right to ask for the firstborn, and we feel good, we do, that God spared Isaac's life at that last minute in that, in that story. And again, in today's passage, hundreds of years later, God claims the right of the firstborn again. Here he is, coming again, claiming the right to the firstborn for everyone. And this isn't about just the Egyptians being judged so that Israelites could go free. If we look at verse 22 in chapter 12, he says, after you put the blood on your door, Let's not miss this. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. Why? It means that even though you are the oppressed Israelites, even though you're ones who are the victims here, you were to meet judgment tonight as well. By God's or even your own standards, without that blood on that doorpost, you, you and your family would have lost its firstborn. Your religion, your ethical behavior, your morals, none of that will save you. You cannot, if you get out from underneath this blood, it will not save you. You will be as lost as those who oppress you. It also means that in every single house, and Tim Keller puts it this way, it's quite blunt, but it's, it, it helps us understand, there was either, in every single household, Egyptian or Israeli, Israelite, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. The lamb got what the son deserved. It was a substitute. It substituted in paying the debt for the family. And every firstborn in in those Israelite uh, um, houses 
looked at the table that night and thought, the only reason I'm not dead tonight is because that is the Lamb. If we can take a moment to step out of this ingrained way that I myself uh, tend to think, we will realize that there is a debt. We have not been living as we should, just as the guilt of some can be transferred to one in the family in this cultural thing that we're not so uh, familiar with, that one can pay the price for the family. And what the Bible says and what most, most cultures believe is that rather than me paying my own debt, someone else in solidarity pays it for me. It's actually a beautiful thing when we think about it and we think about what it means. So not only is this beautiful story of how God kept his promise, this passage is saying it's not the last chapter. God's saying, even though I'm delivering you tonight, it's not the permanent deliverance you need. You are still in a debt of sin. And as important as tonight's deliverance is, you need another one. And as important as this lamb is, you need another lamb. Because you, me, we, all of us, we need a bigger and deeper spiritual deliverance from bondage. Fast forward to another night as described by Paul in in 1 Corinthians. Jesus stands up with his disciples um, and and as it says in verse 23, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do in a remembrance of me. Now, you could almost recite that. Some of you have been part of uh, church life for a long time. That's, a, that's one of those phrases where you know, okay, here we go. Communion's about to begin. And you know what? You're right, because we're going to do com- communion, by the way. Um, this is a gap. Um, we still have some more to go, but uh, late, Lee and the team can, can actually start sort of uh, distributing the other part of uh, the communion um, time. But uh, I want us to keep, keep, stay with me. Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal that had been celebrated for so many years up to that stage, right? He's, this is a Passover meal. His disciples would have recognized that. Okay, cool. Jesus is, 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 is standing up. The, he's going to be the presider. And all these other steps of how to do this, we, we read about, you know, in verse, in, in chapter, uh, much of chapter 12, and it goes on in 13. But there are two shocks about this, this Passover celebration. There are two shocks. Instead of saying, this is the bread of the affliction of our ancestors who suffered so that we could be free that night in Egypt, Jesus says, this is my body. Do you see that? This is the bread of my affliction that I will suffer so that you can have ultimate freedom. That's the first shock to the disciples. And the second There was something apparently missing from the table. There was the bread. uh, There was the wine. But where's the lamb? What kind of Passover meal is this, says the disciples. The lamb was deliberately moved from the Passover table because tonight Jesus is saying, I am the lamb. 
My death is the central event to which all of history of God's relationship to the world has been moving. Ultimate salvation. The one still needed more deeply than that one those Israelites experienced that night in Egypt. Then more than that one that we're celebrating, celebrating up to this stage in Jesus' time, it had been about 1,600 years since this night in Egypt. And they had been celebrating all this time religiously. And not to take away at all from that act of remembrance, right? You'll see, God himself says, continue to keep it in remembrance. So I'm not taking anything away from that, but we are missing a point if we know then we go ahead and we see what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus that day. And he says, Behold, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, our, our firstborn were not saved by the death of some uh, wooly little quadruped. <laughs> One little lamb, no matter um, how cute or fluffy. No, our, our firstborn were saved because God had given up his own firstborn. And that's the answer to Abraham on that mountain, right? God is going to walk up that mountain with his own son, and I'm going to lay the wood on him. And there won't be anyone there to say, stop. So when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, one commentator says that the, the father paid the price in his silence. The father paid the price by his silence. And we can go through a whole list of, why, a list of things why this night on the cross, so, so incredibly similar this night uh, in, in Egypt. In two examples, like John 19, Jesus' bones were not broken. A lamb without spot or blemish we saw today. Matthew 27, Jesus died at twilight. Killed the lamb at twilight. So in summary, with Abram we see that there is a debt to pay. There is a debt that cannot be, that cannot be explained away. It is, it is there. And for Moses then, a substitute can pay for it. And then we see in Jesus, he comes And he says, it's me. It's me. It's God's only son. Now, this may be a bit of an unconventional way to approach the table, the communion table today, but I felt like it was an apt one. Um, It's heavy, uh, but it's it's real, and it, it helps give, a. I feel, a little bit more depth to what this is all about and why we practice communion. And frankly, it's been a long time for us as a community to to break bread you know, to, to, um, to, to do communion together. So I think it's, it's a, it just dawned on me on Monday as I just began to really get deep into this and realized, whoa, communion, we've got to do it. So I hope you feel the same way, but, but, but this has become a lot more raw and real to me this week as the week went on. It's like, wow, this is, but it, we've got to go there. We have to shed these ideas of individualism um, and this idea that, 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 that it's about us that obscures what, what, 
when most of the world already believes that there is a debt that must be paid. And if you're getting stuck with why God is a God of wrath, let me actually point this out. Why is God a God of wrath and not just a God of love? Ironically, a God of wrath is actually and necessarily a God of more love. A God of wrath is actually and and necessarily a God of more love. It's, It's one thing to say, I love you, Right? But it's another thing to show it, says every spouse to the other one. <laughs> it's a truth that many of us have experienced in this season. Right? And community has come to support those dealing with the effects of COVID. We've experienced love, not just the saying of it. But if you believe, if we believe the truth today, what happened on that cross the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it will transform. It transforms the way we look at other people. Jesus died for people who didn't believe in him. Before they believed, he died for them. That's the truth. And um, for those of you battling with this idea of suffering, especially in this time, Take heart in believing that the most undeserved, senseless suffering worked out to the most good. That should completely change our attitudes or begin to change our attitudes towards suffering in our lives. Why did it have to be the bloody death of a helpless victim? We asked that in the beginning today. And in this case, we know that in the story is about a lamb, a physical lamb. You can tell by now I've, I've moved beyond that and we've realized that this is, this is about Jesus who, who came to deliver us ultimately from the bondage that we, that we are owed, that we have a debt towards. And he changed it all. He took it away. Took it away. So, church, let's create a space now for us to, to do communion, to, to, act, uh, to act it in it and in remembrance. You know, just like those Israelites continue to practice the remembrance of that night of deliverance, we practice, as we saw Jesus said, as, 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 as Paul wrote and, and, and talked about that night of Passover meal when Jesus with his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is even also just reflection and in to me see, a, a reflection of where we are and what God might be doing in our lives. And I'd love uh, for Mark and Shay to come up and create some space for us with, with a, a song response as well as we do this. But can I just lead us, um, perhaps even before you guys uh, do it, I would love for you guys for you to participate here with us before you begin. I, I, um, I'd love for you to just take, take one of these crackers and, um, and, and let's just do this together. Seeing that it's the first time in a while, I'd love to just... Uh, um, do this this way. Um, so, so on the night he was betrayed, <laughs> Jesus for the disciples picked up the bread and he said, this is my body that's about to be that night but has been today broken for you and for me. So take it and eat in remembrance of Jesus. Let's do that.
And after they ate the bread, Jesus took the cup and he said, This is my blood <laughs> that will be, and today we say has been, poured out for you. Establishing a new covenant. This covenant, this promise that, that God made to the Israelites, saying he will, rede- he will, he will deliver them from Egypt. This is a new one. Because this chapter of Jesus as the, as the lamb, it's not the last one either. <laughs> Skip ahead to Revelation, we'll see the lamb is on the throne. That's the covenant that Jesus made that night. And it continues to be today as we celebrate and remember Jesus' blood poured out and his new covenant established. Let's drink. Christianity is an eternal Passover meal. I love that. That's not mine. <clears throat> also took that from Tim Keller. Christianity is an eternal Passover meal. Where we, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Let's behold the Lamb today. Let's behold Him. God, we come to you today and we, we be... We, we first of all just confess that we are not the way, we are not God. We are not the center of our lives. We're in a world that just, just sways that way, and we ask that you, um, you break us from that current and uh, wake us up to the reality of uh, who you are and who you've called us to be and who we are in you. Father, we thank you for this truth today, this, this incredibly ancient, yet so much alive, faith and truth and promise that we get to stand, live, and move and breathe today only because of what you did on that cross. Thank you for how an incredible, famous, never forgotten moment that night in Egypt points to an even more incredible, more important, eternally important moment on the cross. Thank you, God. We, we have no words. We really don't. We ask you just do business with our hearts right now. As we sit, as we stand, as we sing, however, God, won't you do, just speak to our hearts. And I invite all of us to just Take these next few moments as we sing, as others may sing. You just want to sit there. Just let, let God speak to your hearts right where you are. It could be the simplest, simplest of moments, but the most significant, maybe. Let's do that. It makes, 